here that's advancing from you in every direction and there's no escape. Number two, you're trapped underwater and can't get to the surface. Or number three, you're in the midst of a family argument, three versus two, and you're part of the two. <laughs> now, at last night's service, people started giving me thoughtful, meaningful answers to that. And then, of course, I bailed out with the easy, well, at least if it's fire or water, you know it's over with quickly. The family dispute goes on forever. <laughs> now, then, of course, 830 didn't laugh at that because they... They were already anticipating, well, actually, that could be really serious stuff, too, and that's probably true. Um, thanks for laughing. Uh, I, I think Jesus is actually tracking all of that, and that's why he says what he says at the beginning of the gospel lesson today. Um, he says, you know, I'm going to bring a fire, and actually, I wish it was already burning. That sounds a little scary. Then he says the thing about the baptism he's going to have to go through. Remember, baptism literally means to be immersed, and he says, it's something I'm going to be compelled in. So in a sense, held under in the immersion, anticipating that. Uh, but uh, he usually rank orders things, so of all of those fearsome things, being caught in the fire or being stuck underwater, the one that's the most fearsome of all is three verses two or two verses three, because he knows those things, those can go on, and they have a profound impact on our lives. Which one do you want to deal with today? Jesus is pretty aware that um, there's a lot of stuff going on in our world. And at first glance, everything he says at the beginning of Luke chapter 12, verses 49 to 56, sounds like a fire and brimstone sermon. Uh, I'm coming to torch you guys. I'm coming to bury you. And it's going to divide you. And that sounds really fearsome. Um, he's good news. He's always good news. He's always light, not darkness. Uh, he's pushing us in a different direction, and it isn't fire and brimstone, but you also can't mistake what he's getting at. So that's what we're going to work on for just a little bit in the sermon. Uh, but first, let's take a side trip to that book, Tribe, that I talked about. Um, one of the interesting things that Tribe does is it's got this chapter devoted to uh, writings from the 17 and 1800s in this country, uh, most notably Benjamin Franklin, who cannot figure something out. And what Benjamin Franklin couldn't figure out, and this is going to use the vocabulary used in the book, uh, but what Franklin was puzzled by was, um, uh, and, and uh, 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 Junger uses the phrase American Indian, he said, when an American Indian in that time is brought into colonial society, uh, educated, um, uh, allowed to kind of see the opportunities and, and uh, possessions that are a part, part of that society, uh, the first chance he or she gets to return to his tribe, he does. And, and Franklin couldn't quite figure that out because colonial white society seemed so advanced in comparison to uh, American Indian culture. But what he really couldn't figure out is that the reverse was also true, which is if, uh, if, a, a, if a colonial person was taken captive by a tribe or otherwise had an opportunity to live in the American Indian culture, when given the opportunity to come back to colonial society, like even when recaptured by, by the colonialists, uh, if they had the chance, they went back uh, to the American Indian tribe. And, and Franklin could not figure this out, nor could other people who observed it at the time. 
And, and Junger and others who've looked at it since just kind of say, well, it might be fairly self-evident that perhaps the European society, for all of its seeming advancement, was by and large an individualist society, uh, also built in a very material way, which frequently the possession of material things made people somewhat unnecessary on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, as opposed to the American Indian situation, which was a community where the needs were ongoing uh, and had to be met by the community itself. In other words, we human beings are a tribal people. When we're cut off from our most basic identity, things aren't necessarily healthier. Uh, Junger then goes on in the rest of the book to say, well, this explains a lot of stuff. This explains why kids want to be on teams. It explains why people would join the military, why people would join a church. People are looking for the tribe. They're looking for something to be a part of that gives them an identity and purpose beyond ourselves, and that when we don't find it, we become unhealthy. And then in your opening thoughts section in the bulletin today, the reason I heard about tribe was the columnist Robert Brooks. Wait, he's a wide receiver. David Brooks. Sorry, Packers, they're just always with us. Anyhow, David Brooks, the columnist, uh, who's not like a raving anti-rich person, just the opposite, actually, but he points out that, you know, in, in American society today, we've, like, taken this to, like, new levels. I mean, uh, if you are affluent, you can move as far away from people as you want. You can build a huge house to get lost in, and we can isolate ourselves as much as we want. But that doesn't make it healthy and it doesn't mean we're connected, nor that we have purpose. But we're not terrible people because of all of this. I mean, this is what societies, generation after generation, have stressed. But it is what gets us back to the gospel lesson, where Jesus is only building on what he's been saying and what we've been hearing the last two weeks. Two weeks ago, if you were here, we had the parable of the foolish farmer who, who was possessed by his possessions, and the more stuff he had, the more likely his soul was to be lost. So material stuff is warning number one as far as Jesus is concerned. And then last week, he tells that really kind of unique saying where he says, well, when, when the master returns to find the slaves ready, then the master serves the servants, the slaves. And that was unheard of in that world that was so built on hierarchy and power. And in like two weeks, Jesus is going to say, you know how the, how the Gentiles lorded over each other? It shall not be so among you. That's why he comes and washes the disciples' feet. Jesus comes, and in Luke in particular, it, you can't get away from the fact that, that what drives us culturally in most cultures uh, to have stuff and to have power is likely to destroy our souls and, in fact, also keeps us from living into what the kingdom of God is actually sort of supposed to be. But how do you do that by yourself? I mean, how do you swim upstream against such an amazing, long-term, powerful social current? And the thing is, you don't do it by yourself. You don't do it without the Spirit of God. And you don't do it all at once, and nobody gets it all done in a lifetime. Um, but it's not like you and I can't choose to think about some things differently in our lives. So let me give you two generational examples, uh, neither of which applies to anyone here in particular, and everybody's circumstances are different. So that disclaimer. But that said, I think these are two pretty 
obvious examples. Number one, how many of you want to spend a large portion of the rest of your life in a nursing home? Raise your hand. One person put their hand up last night. Nobody at 8.30. Of course, nursing home, the way we use it in our vocabulary, is a pejorative. Uh, It immediately brings up in people's minds, you know, people warehoused, unclean, bad smell. Uh, If that's the reality, then, of course, nobody wants to be in a nursing home. Um, But because that's the the impression we all get of our only option as uh, as we get older in life, uh, so many people in this country end up living by themselves in apartments, in their homes, wanting to be independent. And that doesn't turn out well most of the time. Uh, they're cut off from the tribe. And the reality is there are tons of options available to people where they could, in fact, leave the isolation of living uh, by themselves or by themselves in one's place and and could live surrounded in community, a place which also might then, as a result, provide the opportunity for connection and all sorts of forms of purpose. Uh, When we get cut off from the tribe, it's not healthy. Go to the other, uh, not total end of the age spectrum, go to the the millennial generation. Um, Characterized frequently as a generation that uh, wants to be connected, wants to do significant uh, things, um, highly suspicious of of hierarchies and institutions, particularly the church. No generation is less involved in the church uh, than millennials. In part because we, the organized church, give them so many reasons not to be involved. Uh, Because so frequently congregations are unwelcoming, have no sense of mission or purpose, and, 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 and refuse to change in a world that has changed decades before whatever it is they're locked in on. But there are plenty of congregations that aren't that way. There are plenty of congregations that are inviting, plenty of congregations that understand the importance of mission beyond themselves, that understand the importance of supporting each other in an authentic, meaningful way. There are plenty of places like that. So I'm kind of wondering, actually, if there won't be some point in history where there won't be kind of this duh moment for for that generation, for any generation, where they kind of say, and maybe this will only happen after a lot of those churches that do it bad disappear. Um, But maybe at some point the generation will say, well, duh, actually churches are exactly what we're working for. They provide authentic connection. They provide authentic purpose. And then the ultimate dream is that millennials will come back to the church and they will all join a committee. Because <laughs> every generation in history has wanted to be on a committee, right? <laughs> Nobody wants to be on a committee. But I'll tell you this, if somebody comes back and joins a committee that oversees uh, and helps with, with our ministries at a place like Genesis House, and as a result people are able to stay in recovery twice as long as they'd normally be able to or twice as many people are able to go. Um, It'll change more lives just by doing that one thing in in a year than most of us can get done in a lifetime, and that's the truth. Because, see, that's that's how it happens in our world. Nothing happens when we just all go off on our own and work by ourselves. It only happens when you're together, when you're driven, when you have purpose. I think that's called the spirit of Jesus Christ. Fire is maybe 
an interesting image to have today after unrest in Milwaukee yesterday. Um, I think to this congregation's credit, uh, we're involved in meaningful partnerships with congregations and, and ministries in the city. Um, we have to do more. Every, every congregation anywhere has to do more. And I, I think sometimes the cynics would say, well, what are, what are the do-gooders going to do to change everything? To which I would just say, well, then who do you leave it to? The, the do-batters and the do-nothings? Um, the people of God in every time and place um, uh, cannot fall back uh, when forces push against it that, that are hurtful. Um, there is so much good in the city, so much good here. We have to find each other. We've got to find each other. This will be a little spoiler if, if you read Tribe, but the way it starts is this story. Um, but it's a perfect story. And there's plenty of other stuff in there that, that is well worth your time. But the way Junger starts the book is with a story from his own life. He grew up as a Yankee in colonial New England in the 1970s, I think. Um, you know, all these independent people doing their thing. That was fine. That's how he grew up. And he graduates from college, and he doesn't know what to do with himself. He's not really connected, when you think about it, to anything. So he decides to hitchhike across the country, and, and he takes with him what he, what he needs. So he usually has a week's worth of food in his backpack, a tent, a sleeping bag, a little stove to cook stuff on. That's about it. And he makes it to Colorado. And he's thumbing a ride on an entrance ramp to the freeway in Colorado, when all of a sudden he sees this guy walking up the entrance ramp towards him, uh, dressed in kind of shabby clothing, and this alarms him a little bit. And the guy comes up to him, and the first thing the guy asks him is, where are you headed? And, and Junger um, says, California. And, and the guy nods like that's what he expected. So then the next thing he asks is, uh, how much food do you have with you? Now this really alarms Junger because you know, this guy's bigger than he is, and he thinks he's going to rob him. And so he lies, and he says, well, I've got a little cheese with me. And again, the guy nods like this is, the, this is the answer he expected. And then he pulls something out of his bag, and it's not a gun, and it's not a knife. It's one sandwich, one bag of chips, and one apple. And he says, you know, I live in a car in the city, and I, I walk out here to the mine, and uh, sometimes I get a day job, but today they didn't have one. Um, but the church always hands out lunch, and this is the lunch they gave me. You're going to need more than cheese to get to California. And he gives the guy his lunch. And of course, Junger, now having lied about his food supply, can't do anything but take it. And then the guy, after a few more exchanges, walks back down the ramp. And Junger said, you know, I thought all day about that. And then he says, honestly, I've thought my whole life about that guy. Because he was generous, but plenty of people are generous. What was different about him is he took responsibility. For whatever reason, he looked up that lamp, ramp and saw a younger and thought, well, here's a guy who's on the road the same way I am. He's my responsibility. I'm going to bring him lunch. The decisions we make every day about where we choose to live, what we choose to be a part of, who is our responsibility and who will we let have some claim on us? If you don't let somebody else have a claim on you, your independence blocks anybody from caring or changing or asking of you or me.
Fire in the Bible is used in a, in a number of ways, but where it's used first and most significantly is in Exodus chapter 3, where this, there's this guy who's been cut off from his tribe as well as from his purpose in life. And then he sees this bush burning, but it's not consumed. In other words, the fire of God never comes to consume and destroy us. But Moses did recognize what? That he was walking on holy ground. And see, that's, that's God. I can't do that, and neither can you. But God can light a fire under us, the fire that, that we knew we needed anyway, but we didn't take the time, we didn't have the energy, um, we weren't brave enough to kindle it ourselves. But God sure will. And when it happens, it's good news. It's life. It changes everything. You don't have to remember any of that. But one thing you could kind of remember and work on this week is this. Anytime you make any decision this week, anytime you do anything, ask yourself this. Did you do it for yourself? Or did you do it for the tribe? 